right, well, good morning. Well, it's great to be back with you guys uh, this morning. If we haven't gotten a chance to, uh, to meet, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Salem Social. Welcome to everybody here who's joining for uh, child dedications. We're actually going to do a little bit even in our passage this morning about blessings. This is kind of a, a unique coincidence, and, and that's what we're going to talk about. So um, many of you guys know um, this last week I was gone um, down in Arizona, and, uh, and so part of that was work, kind of half work, and, uh, and then the other half, um, you know, was, you know, some more personal stuff, restoring my sanity, you know, through the sunshine and, and, and Chicago Cubs. Um, so if you don't know, that's, that's a huge fan. So, uh, and let me just tell you this, something crazy happened while I was on my way down there or as I arrived into Mesa, um, you know, like you unbuckle, like, cause everyone's in this mad rush to get out. And then you, and then you unclick the airplane mode, right? Reconnecting yourself to the world. Uh, and, uh, and so as I did that, you know, as I'm landing and then, you know, I hit it and, and these texts start to, you know, to ding and buzz through. Um, and, uh, and I get this text from, from Royce, uh, Adamson, who's a friend of mine here, uh, and uh, he and his wife um, had actually sent uh, a picture of a guy um, in an airport, uh, and he said, no, not yet, sorry, oh, quick, not quite yet. Um, he sent a picture um, of us who, who um, looked very much identical, um, and so like, you know, maybe plus 10 years kind of a thing, and it's always weird when you, you see your doppelganger, like in real life, you know, like someone who just looks like you, and so he says, you know, with the text, he says, dude, what are you doing in Mesa, at the airport in Mesa, Arizona, and I replied, and I was like, dude, man, that's obviously not me, as if he needed to know that, um, but I just landed, like in the same airport, like that airport. And he's like, no way. This is crazy. What's going on? I'm like, what are you guys doing here? And he's like, we're going to the, we're going to the Cubs game versus Canada on Wednesday. I was like, no way, me too. <laughs> I was like, this is great. We should meet up. What section are you in? He's like, we're in section 118. I was like, we're in 116. Dude, I could throw things at you. <laughs> this is awesome. You know, we're so close, you know, and so, you know, we get there, and uh, after the game, we take a picture, and, uh, you know, here's the three of us, you know, Royce and Loretta and I at uh, the marvelous Sloan Field, which is second only to Wrigley, so... Um, <laughs> huge Cubs fan, and, uh, and so here's what's great. So here's why I share that. You know, we've been in the book of Ruth um, for a little while now, and we're nearing the end. Um, and what we have found, one of the, one of the things that we found to be true uh, about God in the story of Ruth is that God is not a God of chance. Right? He is always working. He's always weaving stories together. And so when we look at these moments, we're like, oh, happy, happy coincidence. Funny seeing you here. Yeah, yeah, that's not coincidence. Like God is at control and he is weaving his big cosmic story, his meta-narrative of redemption into the world along with our small story. So this is where we find ourselves in this, a little big story, right? Because we each have these individual stories and family stories. And yet again, God has this massive family story that's been going since the beginning of Genesis and all the way until Revelation, Right? And this is ultimately where we find ourselves, uh, again, this morning is sinking through this, right? But it's for you and me, one of the struggles that we have in the, midst, um, in the midst of this is that we look at God and we go, okay, one of the things that we've learned is that God is a redeeming God, right? So he's not, it's not like God just like created the universe and created people and like threw them into the deep end. He was like, good luck, see you on the other side. You know, that's not what he does, 
You see, what he's doing is that he's looking into the brokenness of humanity, the destitute nature, the depravity, the chaos of the human heart, and as he looks in on that, he's like, I'm not okay with this situation. And so this this theme of redemption from Genesis to Revelation is about him reaching into the story, actively engaging and buying back moments. And, and redeeming, buying back moments and people and circumstances, and he's really redeeming, he's, he's buying stories for himself that he can use for his purposes, which is his meta-narrative, this big story of redemption. And so for me, one of the things that I struggle with is, is this idea that I go, God, I know that you are a God of redemption. I know that you're a God of redemption, and I know that you want to redeem. I know that you're actively redeeming, but here's this thing. I got this question in my heart right now. When are you going to do it? Does anybody else ever feel that? Like you're, like you're in the midst of story, and you're like, you know, gosh, like I know that God wants to do something big here, and I know that he's going to bring fullness to my emptiness, but like when is that going to happen? And if I were to be vulnerable, you know, for a second, I would just tell you that right now, one of the things in my life where I'm experiencing sin is just this idea of impatience. I don't know what it is right now, but like there's just something in my heart that's like impatient, impatient, impatient. And so it's hard. Waiting is very, very hard. It's a tremendously difficult thing. And in fact, that's actually where we find ourselves even in Ruth. Because at the end of chapter 3, which Jordan did this last week, we find this verse, right? It says, she replied, wait. And you're like, what's the context for that? I'm, this is my first time here. Ruth has just been vulnerable, and she's gone to Boaz and basically said, I'd like to marry you. And she comes home to Naomi, and she's like, hey, way to go. Wait. Wait. But I want to know how this thing, like, resolves. I want to know. God, tell me, when, is, when are you going to do this? When is this going to happen? When are you going to bring fullness to my life? And, and she's like, wait. And waiting is really, really hard. But I want to just point out a couple things from this verse. Like, like what she says, like, until you learn how the matter turns out. But guess what? For the man, she's talking about Boaz, will not rest. That word rest is kind of like the idea of speaking or quietness. So it's, it's implying, she's saying, she's like, Boaz isn't going to like just take your words and he's not going to like crock pot and sit on it for two weeks and go, oh yeah, remember that girl who wanted to marry me? No, he's going to be vocal. He's going to be active, this agent, and he's going to go and he's going to take care of it. In fact, it says that he will settle the matter. The subtleness right here. What this is talking about is is this idea of of finishing or completing or accomplishing or bringing something to an end to the moment where you can say it is finished. And automatically, you know where we're going because of the end of the sermon. We'll talk about Jesus. It is finished, right? And, and, you know, I know that our story is different than Ruth and and, uh, Naomi's and Boaz's story, but for them and their story, right, she says, nope, go back. She says this, you know, it's going to happen today. Like, the matter is going to be resolved today. And so when I think about you and me and our life, like, like I don't know where you're at or what you're waiting for or, or what that story is, and I have no I have no concreteness to say that whatever it is and wherever in your story that God is actually going to bring it to completion, like to a moment of resolution today. 
But here's what I can tell you. There's these two things. One is this, is I know that waiting is hard. It's, it's hard. Being patient in the midst of a, of a plan that's being unfolded by God that you don't have control over is hard. Here's what I do know, is that God will finish your story. He will finish it, right? He who he started a good work in you will bring it to completion at the end, right? Like, I know that God will do this. And the three things that we're going to look at as we do this this morning, is we're going to look at the Redeemer, we're going to look at the cost of redemption, and we're going to look at the blessing of redemption. So here we are in chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Ruth chapter 4. If you don't um, have that, you can use your companion journal uh, as well. Um, it's on page 35. It has the passage in there. If you don't have one of these and you would like one, you can raise your hand, and one of our wonderful ushers will, will bring that to you. We're kind of right on the tail end, so we're almost out of them. But if you'd like it, it is, it's yours. It's our gift to you. So chapter 4, verse, verse 1. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Okay, I just want to hit pause here for a second, because this is the continuation of the story. What ended in chapter 3, you got Naomi and Ruth at home having this nice, warm conversation about what God is going to do, right? We switch characters to Boaz in chapter 4, who's working independently, but on the exact same problem, right? On the exact same thing. He's working to bring a resolution. And where does he go? He goes to the city gate, okay? Which is weird for us. This is a hard thing for us to grasp because um, cities back then were much smaller and they had walls, walls for protection, right? We don't have that and our cities are huge. So imagine like going like to this, this city gate. This is a place where everyone gathers. It's a place where everybody has conversations. They, they buy things, they sell things. Uh, it's where lawful transactions happen. Um, the local gossip, I don't know, all sorts of things happen at the city gate. And it's hard for us because, like, you just imagine, like, the city council going and sitting at the interstate, right? And as people come in, you're like, hey, good to see you. It's a very different pace of life, a very, very different style. But for them, at the city gate, right, they gather, and this is where they, this is where they, they congregate. And this is where a lot of these conversations happen on a daily basis. So this is where Boaz goes, because he believes or thinks that this redeemer, this other guy, is going to come in. Now, when we're introduced to this new character, uh, he doesn't have a name. Because his name is not necessarily significant, what he offers is significant, which is the idea or the right of redemption. So he's called the Redeemer, okay? We're just going to call him Goel because that's the Hebrew word for Redeemer, okay? So Goel enters into the story, and Boaz happens to see him, right? And the word behold, this is another word that's used way back in chapter 2, right? It's when Boaz enters into the fields, like Ruth happens by chance to go to the field, and then behold, this suddenness or surprise of Boaz comes here, right? Boaz goes to the city gate and behold, there's the suddenness or surprise. It's like the, the author is reorienting our, like our, our, our eyesight, our ears as like you're watching a movie and all of a sudden the new character enters in and the camera shifts and we all begin to look and Boaz sees him in the suddenness. He's like, hey, oh, it's great you're here. Turn aside, friend. Come on over here. Have us have a sit down. Let's have some Old Testament tea or I don't know what they drank, you know, something like let's have some time together. Okay. 
And so this is what he does. So he turns aside, he sits down, and they begin this conversation. But here's what's interesting, right? That all seems like to have this suddenness or, or surprise, or it seems to happen by chance. And yet the very next words talk about Boaz taking 10 men. It's like he had already procured the elders of the city. He procures the elders of the city, and he brings them over. He says, great, now let's all sit down together, and let's have a conversation about Naomi. Okay, now here's what's interesting, just a quick application here um, as, we, as we think through this. Because, you know, we've got this, this big story, right, we've been talking about. There's a big story that God is weaving from Genesis to Revelation, and it's his, it's his redemption story about how he's going to buy back, right, buy something back in order to make the world right, right? And then yet at the same time, there's these small stories, and so, you know, we wonder, like, if God is in control of these, and if they're being interwoven together, how is it that we as humanity actually enter into the story? Like, where's my choice in this? Like, how does that work? And so, here's what I was thinking. So, like, there's this Hebrew concept called Kavanaugh that I want to share with you, right? And so, Boaz is a great example for this, because it's like what he's doing is that he's doing life. Like, in every moment that he does life is a moment where he's expecting God to show up. Okay? And so he's showing up, showing up, and showing up. And Boaz is like, at any single given moment or at any single given opportunity in life, whatever it is, I'm going to show up and I'm going to do my part. Like, I'm ready for that. I don't know what God is going to do, but when something arises, I'm going to be prepared to do it. Now, like, when the moment happens, there's this vertical this vertical thing that happens, right? And so Kavanaugh is expressing this, this center point right here, this bullseye, is when I'm showing up and I'm actively participating in the story, but I have this exact same expectation that the Holy Spirit is going to show up and he's going to do something. So any given moment in life, Boaz is like, he's like, here's the deal. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if Goel's on vacation. I don't know if he's at home sick. But if he shows up, guess what? I'm ready to go. If God makes that clear, then I'm ready. And I got these 10 guys who are ready with me to have this conversation about Naomi, right? And so what he's going to do is he's going to present this, this goel with an opportunity. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, Then he, or Boaz, said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. Do you hear the eagerness in Boaz's voice? Boaz is eager. He's like, hey, you're the closest relative, and so I'm doing the right thing by coming to you, but if it's not you, then I want it to be me, Right? And you can almost sense that, right? It doesn't matter how shrewd he's going to be in this conversation, right? If you love somebody, that love comes out. 
That love's going to be expressed in some way, shape, or form. And so here's Boaz. He's putting himself on the line. His love is showing through, and yet the response from this other guy is this, um, I will redeem it. Oh, no. Like, if this is an Old Testament Hallmark movie, you're like, no, wrong. No. Like, he just, he just entered. We've known this guy since the beginning of the story. That dude's random. Uh-uh. I don't like him. He's not the guy, right? And all of a sudden, we find ourselves in this tension between these two redeemers. And what we're going to find is that for the first guy, for Goel, it's going to be a pragmatic thing. Because notice this, is that up until this point, has Ruth been mentioned at all? No. What's been mentioned? Land a parcel of land. And so if you're watching this movie unfold, who are you rooting for? Are you rooting for the Redeemer Goel? Are you rooting for Boaz? You're rooting for Boaz. Why? Because his motivator is love. You're like, the other guy's just going to build a parking lot. You know, he's the guy who came in and ruined Christmas. You know, we want Boaz to win this story, to be the redeemer. And yet, not knowing how the story would turn out, we're left with two potential redeemers. We've got Goel, and you have Boaz. And really what it's going to come down to is it was because we don't know if we're not assuming how the story is going to turn out, right? Like, if we're not knowing that, then it's, what it's really going to come down to is how much does it cost and who's willing to make the sacrifice? Who is willing to pay the price to redeem Ruth? Who's willing to do it? That's what it's going to come down to. So this is the cost of redemption. Check this out in verse 5. This is where everything changes, okay? Because again, up until now, it's been just the land and the parcel. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, cleverly, I love that. He could have just said, (laughs) right? Then Boaz said, the day, by the way, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Oh, by the way. Oh, by the way. Right? When you look at this, like, sometimes we, you could read that and you go, man, like, Boaz is being, like, deceptive. Can we just, like, squash that, like, right here, right now? Nothing that Boaz does is wrong. He's not deceptive. He's not manipulative. But he's shrewd. He's very, very, very shrewd. And he's weaving these stories together, and he's got an ace card up his sleeve, and it's Ruth. It's like, as soon as you pull out the Ruth card everything is going to change because the law of redemption is this. Okay, so get this. The law of redemption is this. Let's just say that you are the, the, the goel. You're the redeemer, okay? And if you're presented with an opportunity to buy a piece of land and with it you receive Naomi, right? You receive Naomi, like all of a sudden you go, okay, so like my responsibility is to love on her, to care for her, to give her a family, to give her a roof over her, over her head, to give her food, etc. But the field that I gain or the field, the whole property that I gain far outweighs the cost of one person. Far outweighs the cost of one person. So you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, and why wouldn't I consider it? Right? That makes total sense, because look what I get. This is great. This is a good deal. Right? But as soon as Ruth is mentioned, Ruth is young. She has the right to bear children. 
She has the right for her name and for her lineage to continue. So as soon as Ruth is a part of the conversation, he knows, he knows this, is that if he acquires all of this, then Ruth, he is responsible to provide her with a child. Because that's the right of redemption. If you're a family member... The kinsman redeemer says, if your family is in trouble, you got to do everything you can to buy it back, to give it all you got, to sacrifice for that so that they can continue to feel loved and cared for because they're your family. But because she can still bear children, all of a sudden, the law would now require that if he paid all of this lump, this sum of money for, for this parcel of land, and now he has Ruth, the moment she bears a son, here's what he has to do. He has to give all of the land back for free. So he would pay how much money? We don't know. A lot. A ton of money only to then give it away. That's a sacrifice, isn't it? It's huge. It's a huge sacrifice. By the way, one of the things I don't like in this text is the word acquire. That sounds like, like Ruth is property. That's not the case. What the Hebrew is trying to express here is that it's that going back to the right of obligation and responsibility that, that if, she, if you buy the land, if you redeem the land, and now Ruth comes with it, you have the responsibility and the obligation as a kinsman, redeemer, to provide for her. You take her under your wing, and she gets what she is owed, right? And in this case, it's a child. And so he's like, he's, he's wrestling through this, because all of a sudden, because remember, right, he is at the city gates. Where is everybody else? At the city gates. And he's caught in a public and ethical dilemma. He's got to be asking himself the question, is this something that I can afford to do? Which, by the way, is a great question for all of us to ask. Right? Credit cards make this really easy to ignore. But if we live outside of our means, we end up in debt. And what happens if you, that continues into the long run, what happens is, is that now you have no money left to give your family. And so for this guy, what he's wrestling with is, is this a cost that I can incur? And with everybody around him, he, we don't know. By the way, the text doesn't tell us how much this is going to cost. Because that's not the point. But what we know is that the cost is too high. It's too much for him to be willing to make the sacrifice. Because when you look at verse 6, here's what he says. He says, then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, on paper, guys, this makes total sense. Right? Because if he has to buy the field for this large sum, of mon- like large sum of money, and then he has to give all of it away for free, getting nothing in return, now he doesn't have enough to provide for the rest of his family. And you look at that and you go, that's pragmatic. That's super wise. That's actually really good, and we applaud that. That's what's listed in the text. I don't know. The text doesn't tell us about this, but I do wonder if the fact that Ruth was a Moabite had any part in this. Because when Boaz explains the situation with Ruth, what does he call her? A Moabite. From the whole portion of the book, the idea of the Moabite thing has been a barrier. And Boaz has a heart for the nations. He sees Ruth not as a Moabite, but as a woman who loves God. 
this Proverbs 31 woman. And so you look at this guy and you're like, I'm not sure if Goel had the same heart. Did he see Ruth in the same way that Boaz did? No, because if he did, he would have made the sacrifice. And he didn't. And so we don't know, but there's the sense, I go, man, like, what if he's just like, like underneath, he's like, okay, on paper, he's like, nah, I can't afford it. But on the inside, he's like, I don't want to have anything to do with a Moabite. I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that Boaz loves her for who she is and for her love for God. Then there's this personal kind of confirmation that happens. It's this bizarre exchange, this tradition that happens um, between um, Goel and, and Boaz, right? And so when he says that he can't do this, the custom is, is that he would take off his sandal, which is just super gross, right? He takes off his dirty, gross, sweaty, you know, stinky sandal, and he hands it to Boaz. And then Boaz takes it and he holds it. And then in the letting go, there's this symbolism, right? That, that I am surrendering my rights. Because this sandal is something that I own. It's something that, that I had the rights to. And by giving it, I'm saying it's no longer mine. I'm transferring this to you. Now, we don't know, like, like this is such a bizarre custom. Like, we don't know what, what Boaz did with this. Like, does, does he get to keep the sandal? Like, does he, like, cool, that's great, now you can have it back, it stinks. You know, like, maybe, like, I don't know, you think about, like, with Ruth, does he, like, does he, like, tuck it into his robe and then, like, go home and, and, like, he knocks on the door, you know, at Naomi's and Ruth's and they're, like, you know, they come to the door, hey, what's going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Surprise! <laughs> Sandal! You know? Maybe it's an Old Testament, you know, Hallmark story. And so you're like, no, it's got to be way more romantic than that. Maybe he, he, uh, he wraps it up in a nice box. I don't know what he would wrap it with. You know, I don't know, papyrus. No, it wasn't even invented. So like he puts it in a box and then they sit by the fire. They cook some nice fish and, you know, have a glass of water. And, and she's like, oh, what's in the box? Oh, open it. And as she opens it, she sees a dirty, dusty, gross, stinky sandal. And she holds <gasps> Oh, thank you. Why? Because it's an engagement. And all of a sudden, the women are like, thank goodness for rings. Like, this is such a bizarre <laughs> custom. Like, what do you even do with that? Do you like, like, great. Do you like stuff it into like a random drawer as a keepsake for later? Goel's stinky sandal? Like, it's just weird, right? And yet, there's this public confirmation that he does. And the same thing with, with the people. And in, in, in front of everybody, he says, you guys are my witnesses, Today, I have finished this. I brought it to resolve, right? I bought the land, and in that, what happened is that I also get to marry Ruth. And all of a sudden, you see this emotion, this eagerness, like pouring out of Boaz. He's like, yeah, I got the land. That's great. But guess what? I get to marry Ruth. Why? Because I love her. I love Ruth. And this is why Boaz, this is when we cheer, right? We know, we, now we know the Redeemer, and we know the cost. The cost was super high. It was so high and so big that Goel, the Redeemer, the first Redeemer, was unwilling to pay. But Boaz says, I'm all in. Whatever it costs, however much it costs, I am all in. And so we get to the blessing, and so all the people like are happy and, you know, kind of cheering and verses, you know, 11 through 12, this is what it says. It says, then all the people who were at the gate 
And the elder said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And as we look at this, we go, wow, here's, a, here's an act of blessing. So when people pray or say an act of blessing, this is what it is. It's expressing a strong desire. It's the strong hope that this is what we hope, this is what we desire life to be like. And the primary influencer in that is who? It's God, it's Yahweh. And so as God, we're like, hey, God, would you enter into this story and would you, with all that you've done to start with emptiness and bring it to fullness, would you continue to bless this family that they might grow and be fruitful? It's a strong hope, this strong desire, right? And it's this beautiful thing. So as we look at this, right, it starts with this blessing over Ruth, right? They, they label her, her the woman, um, but it's really talking about Ruth. They're praying over Ruth. Now, they have no clue. This is what's so great about this. They have no clue what God is up to in the big picture. They have no clue. But they're praying that God would bless her. Guess what? God's like, well, I already got it. I know. I know who Ruth is. She's awesome. I'm going to do big things. And they are just praying. So you don't know what, like, like what effect or what result your prayers are ever going to have, do you? It's kind of cool, right? The next one, it goes on to Boaz, and it says, may you act worthily in Ephrathah. So this guy who's, who's classified as a, as a man who is worthy in these opening chapters, now they're saying, gosh, would you continue to bless him? May he continue to be worthy and act worthily. And then it goes to the house. And so what we see is actually what starts with Ruth. There's this blessing over Ruth. There's a blessing over Boaz as individuals. And then there's a blessing for them together. And what God might do both in them and through them together. By the way, if you don't know of the household of Ruth and Boaz comes who? Jesus. God's like, I know the plan I know the plan. I know what I am doing, but I love this because the people's desire here is this. If we come back over here, right? So we think small story, right? As you come to this small story, big story, right? There's a small story that every single one of us in this room has. It's you as an individual. It's your family, right? It's the day in, the day out. It's, it's your story. And when we as humans, we look at this, we go, our desire for each other is that we would flourish. Like we long to see God enter into the story, especially like, when story, like a story with like Ruth and Naomi where they started in, in full ways and then everything was emptied. They lost all of their loved ones and, and, you know, and there's this destitute, this brokenness, right? This, this emptiness. And when, when you look, I mean, there are people, there's so many families, I think, in our church right now that I could look at, that I could think of and go, man, like, like our desire is that God would enter into that story and bless them that they would flourish. Oh, we long for that. So much we long for that. And yet, if that's our desire as humans, what's God's desire? Like, how much more so is this idea of flourishing right? It's all caps. 
right? Because if we want to flourish in the small story, God's like, hey, here's the deal, Seth. I know every single thing that's going on here. I know all of the doubts. I know all the questions. I know all the frustrations. I know the impatience. I know everything that's happening here, and I'm working in that. I need you to wait for it, but I'm working in it. Guess what? Because simultaneously, I'm working on this plan. And I'm going, I see the destitute, the brokenness, the chaos, and the emptiness of the human heart. And yet somehow, in some way, shape, or form, God can actually bring these two stories together. And it's beautiful that God would look on us and go, I get this, I'm working there, at the same time, I'm working here. Now, if we were to come back over here to this, you know, to kind of this how piece, right? You looked at, we saw like Boaz, like every, every moment as we go throughout the day, right? We're looking and waiting for opportunities for God to show up and to do something powerful. And it's in those moments, right, right here that we go, what's at the center of this? It's this idea of Jesus. Like Jesus is the bullseye. And yet, I think that so oftentimes, and this is what's challenging, is that so oftentimes, when we think about redemption, we put like redemption language way out here. So we know that God is a redeeming God, and so we use these words like, you know, propitiation and atonement and expiation and and justification, and there's all these big fancy words that describe what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you and me. And we go, man, those are great, and those are so important. But here's what oftentimes happens, is that we put ourselves, if this is redemption language, we put ourselves as the redeemed in the same circle. I want you to notice the distance between here and here. You see, so oftentimes we miss that at the center of redemption is a redeemer. And it was Jesus, who is a real person who walked and breathed. And just like Boaz, as he entered into the story, he saw a person in need. Jesus saw a people in need. And guess what? He said, what's the cost? But no matter what, I'm willing to pay the cost. And the cost was his life on the cross. So instead of being out here, we can be just like Ruth and Boaz. Like this married couple, right? Right there they are. Instead of living out here and Jesus in here, it's like we are together in this personal relationship with Jesus. These words identify how our relationships works and, and what made that possible, but the relationship is here. And that's what Jesus wants for us. And here's the thing, is I look at God's big story and the small story. This is where At the bullseye of this, right here in this space, at the bullseye, that's where we learn, that's where we understand, and we can flourish in God's big story, and at the exact same time, we flourish in the small story. Because at the center of our daily living is Jesus and the gospel, and what he accomplished for us. Guys, as we finish, as we wrap this up, 
I want you to remember this, is that waiting is hard. In the midst of whatever story, you know, wherever you're at, waiting is hard. But here's what I do know, is that wherever you're at in the story, wherever that horizontal line is, and however God is doing that, I know that God will finish your story. So can I encourage you to be patient as I encourage myself to be patient, and may we look for gospel opportunities every moment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we finish, as we close uh, this morning, and as I'm thinking through these, this, this story, like this kind of this, this connection, this intertwining of, of your big story, the way that you're redeeming humanity uh, and how that's being intertwined into our small stories, our individual stories, our, our, our marriages, our families, as you look into the brokenness, into the chaos of the world, like that you would ask the question, who is willing to pay the price? Who is willing to incur the cost that it will take to bring about the forgiveness of sins? Who is able and willing to make the world right? And the answer is no one other than Jesus, who was shrewd in that he was fully God and fully man. The exact solution that we needed in his sinless life, dying on the cross, resurrecting to provide life, that we would look to Jesus and say, thank you, God, for redemption. And so, Lord, I don't know where we're at this morning, whatever is going on in our life, and we know there's no guarantee that that whatever we're waiting for will be brought to a place of resolution in this moment. But we know that you will finish our story because you've already finished the big story in Jesus. And so, Lord, whatever our questions, whatever our doubts, whatever our concerns, whatever our frustrations, Lord, may we remember that you know our story. We are your handiwork. We are your design, and we are designed to flourish in Jesus. Lord, we love you, and thank you so much. In your name we pray. Amen.